Welcome to Feps Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Um, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Hedwig Juston. I'm Senior Policy Advisor at the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. And I'm here for another FEPS talk with Catherine Bullard, who is Secretary General at the European Council on Refugee and Exiles, which is, uh, and I'm quote from your website, an alliance of 105 NGOs across uh, 40 European countries, whose mission is to protect and advance the rights of refugees, asylum seekers, and other forcibly displaced persons in Europe. Among the activities that your organization carries out, there is, for example, legal support for refugees and asylum seekers and advocacy. First of all, welcome, Catherine. Thank you for having me. I'm pleased to be with you. Um, we have invited Catherine to have a chat uh, with FAPS concerning the situation that is developing mm -hmm. at the border between Greece and Turkey. At the end of February, uh, the Turkish president Erdogan, following an escalation of the fight uh, in the Syrian town of Idlib, has opened the borders between Turkey and, and Greece, allowing uh, people, refugees in, in Turkey, to seek their way towards Europe and uh, creating, in the, according to the Greek government, a new emergency in Greece. Uh, this, this situation seems to expose uh, something that many observers in the last years have said, expose the shortcomings of the EU-Turkish Turkey deal that was uh, signed exactly four years ago. What's your opinion in this regard? So I think recent events show the risk of relying on someone like President Erdogan to manage the situation rather than Europe mounting its own collective response. The President Erdogan is currently using refugees as a pawn in order to try and extract concessions from the rest of Europe. What he wants is not about the money, and this was always the mistake with the deal to focus on the money. In fact, what interests him are security considerations in relation to Turkey's interests in Syria. While we condemn what President Erdogan is doing, at the same time we have to acknowledge that Turkey is hosting 3.7 million Syrians and hundreds of thousands of other refugees. So it's doing more than its fair share um, and it's also important to cooperate with Turkey and in a sense to show solidarity with Turkey because um, of the, the large number of people that it's hosting. And in fact we see currently there are now 12 million people displaced by the Syrian conflict and only some a small percentage, some tens of thousands, will arrive in Europe. So Europe should be doing what it can to manage that. Mm -hmm. And what do you think has been so far the response of the European authorities? Because we have seen what the Greek government has done, which has been a very harsh response towards the, uh, the refugees who were trying to cross the, the, the border. They have used tear gas uh, and they have suspended uh, the application for uh, asylum uh, for a month something which it's against international law and it's against uh, European laws. So what do you think, what's been the, the response of the European Union so far and what should it be in your opinion? 
So let's start with the question of Greece. I think we're highly concerned by Greece's response to this situation for the reasons that you describe. There are three elements of its response where we have concerns about legality. The first is the situation at the border and the prevention of people accessing Greek territory. People have a right to cross borders to seek protection. So those actions look like a breach of the principle of refoulement uh, through prevention of entry. Secondly, we're concerned about the use of detention, which appears to be unlawful uh, in a number of instances in Greece's response. And If I may, there has been a news published by the New York Times about this. Maybe you can uh, say something about this... Yes, indeed. We're waiting for uh, corroboration of some of the stories that we've heard that people are being detained and in some cases apparently also then forcibly returned Mm. without any kind of due process. Mm. It was already the case that people were being arrested after crossing and we've also heard instances of people being given criminal sentences for having crossed supposedly illegally, mm-hmm. when, as we, uh, as I mentioned earlier, people have the right to cross borders to seek protection. The third element that's problematic is the question of suspension of acceptance of asylum decisions, which the Greek government has put in place through an emergen- emergency act. Um, this appears to breach the right to asylum, uh, which is established in international and EU law. So then the question comes to what is the EU's response to this when we see a member state acting in a way that appears to flagrantly violate both EU and international law. Unfortunately, the initial response of the EU was really alarming. We saw the absorption and the use of the same kind of military rhetoric that Greece was using. So treating this relatively small number of people trying to seek protection as a security threat. Because we are talking of about a few, uh, I think 20,000 people more or less, although the the Turkish authorities have spoken about 100,000 people, which do you know where the real numbers stays? It's very difficult to get accurate information. Um, And this is also partly because of the situation in Turkey, where in general, the security of NGOs, of civil society, but also of refugees themselves, is very fragile. And so even something like documenting what's happening on the Turkish side and gathering information can also be very difficult. And so we're looking at, I would think, some tens of thousands of people. Um, and of that vast number of people who are in Turkey and uh, beyond that who have no chance of uh, arriving in Europe. So these are numbers that are manageable for the European Union if it responds collectively. So first of all, we didn't agree with the response that appeared to support and even follow the same problematic line as the Greek government. Um, While it may be unrealistic to expect condemnation, at very least the EU could and should have reminded Greece of its obligations under EU and international law. 
such as the obligation to uh, provide access to asylum and provide access, uh, effective access, which means having an asylum procedure. Um, and clearly in a situation where that's suspended, um, that, that's um, immediately not ha- happening. The second uh, element that concerns us is the absence of positive alternatives being presented by the EU. Um, And this is something that we saw in 2016, where there were alternatives, there were alternatives to the EU-Turkey deal, but they weren't necessarily invoked. So the EU has legal measures that it could invoke, the Temporary Protection Directive, which is there, a, a part of the EU legal order which is there to deal with the situation of sudden um, inflow of people. Um, There are emergency measures under the Dublin regulation. For instance, suspending transfers to Greece would be one possibility. There are also um, emergency, broader emergency and humanitarian uh, programmes that could be um, put into place. Um, in addition, we would say a positive alternative from Europe could focus on ensuring rapid access to asylum. So bringing in EASO support, operational support that is allowing people to access asylum procedures, expanding emergency reception so that people have dignified reception conditions when they come in, um, and then, of course, relocation. Mm-hmm. Um, we've already been arguing for um, an, a reinstatement and an expansion of relocation out of Greece. Here I would note that there may be positive news as a, a plan to relocate uh, children, perhaps up to one and a half thousand, is being discussed and may then be implemented. But um, relocation is also an instrument that... Um, the European Union has used is using, but with some uh, some limits because there are still countries mm-hmm. which refuse to accept refugees. Uh, so the the question is that the political will is probably still missing nowadays to do that. Do you think? Do you see ways to overcome to bypass uh, the lack of willingness by some member states? Yes, we argue that right now this is a, a, a an, uh, this is a challenging situation, and and that means that every country that's willing to assist should assist, and um, and we would advise then leaving behind those who are not willing to help. Mm. So you can have a collective European response without waiting for all countries to be involved. And effectively, this is what we've seen happening, for instance, in the context of disembarkation in relation to the other humanitarian crisis, which is what's been happening in the central Mediterranean region, where after the decision of the former uh, Italian interior minister Salvini to prevent ships from disembarking, this provoked a crisis. And one of the ways that has been overcome is through establishing relocation and agreement on relocation relocation programs which involve the countries that are willing to assist. Mm-hmm. Um, so because Greece is also a country at the border, this means that that kind of program mm-hmm. could also be helpful mm-hmm. in this context and would help immediately deal with some of the suffering. Underlying and, and, this, and if I, if I can sure. ask you, also Greece is a country of the border which mm-hmm. is still suffering 
from the, the large presence of refugees in its small islands mm -hmm. across the Aegean. Like we, we have been reading about the situation in Lesbos. There are, I believe, about 42,000 uh, refugees still in, uh, in, uh, in the islands. Uh, what is your suggestion or the suggestion of the, of the organization mm -hmm. you direct to cope with this very hard situation in the islands? So let's remember that the situation on the islands is a, an ongoing scandal yeah. and the humanitarian crisis there has been provoked by the EU-Turkey deal, which we discussed at the beginning. And the EU-Turkey deal led to the containment of people on the islands, essentially also a form of detention, with the idea that they would then be returned to Turkey. And that situation hasn't changed. People have been left there in limbo. So even before the recent developments, we were arguing for um, a revision of the, the deal or the agreement so that people would no longer be contained on the islands but would immediately be transported to the mainland in combination with other measures. So when Greece uh, sees itself as having disproportionate burden. To some extent this is true because the arrivals in 2016 were managed through a solution that can, a, a supposed solution, of course it's no real solution, that contained people on the Greek islands. And in the meantime I think it's become quite clear that Turkey is not safe for refugees and is not safe for Syrians despite the existence of the temporary protection regime uh, which is the legal regime for Syrian refugees in Turkey. We've seen President Erdogan repeatedly threaten to forcibly return people to Syria, most recently in the context of establishing the so-called safe zones within Syria following uh, Turkish invasion. So, um, People can't be returned to Turkey. Right now, there has to be other approaches, which is, first of all, alleviating the situation on the islands and then looking at solidarity and relocation measures. Mm. Um, I would add that underlying all of this is the issue of the unfairness of the legal framework itself. Mm. And so... As we know, the responsibility allocation system, which is set out in the Dublin regulation, it implies a disproportionate responsibility for the countries at the borders because the, one of the, the default principle is that the country of first arrival is responsible for people. Um, and I think this underlies some of what's happening. So in the long term, we need to see compliance with all other aspects of EU asylum law but a reform of the responsibility allocation system that's set out in Dublin 3. Don't you think that these last three years uh, have been a lost opportunity to reform the, the asylum system, consider that the number has been declining thanks, thanks to the, uh, the deal, yes. uh, which, however, as you said, has shown its shortcomings, and to the, uh, to the arguable deal with, between Italy and, and Libya. But these three years could have been used to, um, to reform mm -hmm. the, the asylum system. I, I think that's a good question. The issue is how do you reform the asylum system and how do you mm -hmm. make it work? Our argument is that the proposals, the legislative proposals launched in 2016 were not the solution because mm -hmm. those proposals actually codified 
many elements of the EU-Turkey deal. So they introduced inadmissibility procedures. They would have lead, led to increased responsibility for the countries at the borders. They, they would codify the externalization of the, of voilà. the management. Uh, and, and they were based on the idea, really, of outsourcing responsibility. So our argument, in addition, the Dublin 4 proposal didn't deal with the dysfunctionalities present in the Dublin system. It also exacerbated them to many, uh, in many ways. So we're arguing now for compliance with existing EU asylum law. The EU has standards on reception, on status determination, on asylum procedures, and we've identified a whole series of implementation gaps. And this should be the focus of the EU, of the Commission, of EASO, and then, of course, of the member states themselves to make the system function. The piece that does need reform is Dublin and responsibility allocation. That is going to be a very long process, but any reform efforts need to be based on a proposal that actually addresses the flaw in the system. Um, in the meantime, there are, are ways to implement the Dublin 3 regulation, um, which can be done in, to make it more humane. So, for instance, um, prioritise and put resources into family reunification. This is supposed to be the first criteria for allocation of responsibility. For different reasons, it's not working. And this is partly why we have this situation in Greece, that family reunification is not working effectively. And after that, member states can use the humanitarian clauses to assume responsibility for people in different circumstances. And member states can also not focus so extensively on trying to realise Dublin transfers and sending people back to countries where the conditions are not adequate and where those countries are already dealing with extensive responsibility. So you have a situation where people, uh, where member states may be relocating people, but at the same time they're transferring more mm. people back under Dublin. In addition, the majority of launched Dublin transfers don't work. So while that process is running, people are left in limbo, and this has a serious implication for mental health, but also for integration prospects. And there is also the question of the length of the procedures. Absolutely. Um, before we close our, uh, our conversation, I think uh, it's almost unavoidable in, in coronavirus times to, to, to discuss this. Do you think that this, the spreading of the virus across Europe will also affect will shadow uh, the situation uh, on, uh, in Greece again and postpone even further uh, their finding of solutions? Um, it might do. I would say, first of all, we prefer to talk about positive alternatives rather than solutions. And the reason I emphasize that is because to talk about solutions assumes that migration and displacement is a problem that Europe has to solve. Mm -hmm. In fact, these are extremely complex issues. And for the situation in Greece, we would say there are positive alternatives that I described that could be put in place. The distraction and the lack of focus on these issues because of the coronavirus or whatever other crisis might emerge, ironically, is not necessarily a bad thing. Because on this issue, mm -hmm. the more attention there is, unfortunately, the more likely it is that bad things happen. Mm -hmm. um, and this is one of the reasons, for instance, 
even though we see flaws in the legal framework, we don't necessarily argue for legal change because in this current political context, many of the changes would be problematic. So um, it could be that while all these other things are going on, those responsible for asylum and migration should be getting on with pragmatic human rights-based alternatives to some of the grand, grandiose, unrealistic and externalisation fantasy options that people discuss at other times. If I may add also the attention of some populists and right-wing politicians is currently diverted towards the virus and they're not talking about migration. And I think this is also a, posit- a kind of positive, if I may use this word, outcome. I think you're you're right because it also gives it another focus for some of the very problematic actors who exploit any kind of political crisis on this issue. I think this takes us right back to the beginning where we would hope that the situation at the EU-Turkey border is not treated as a panic or a political crisis but as something that is uh, challenging but can be managed through a collective response. Yeah, because it should be underlined, we should underline here again, that is, we are talking of just about 20,000 people, yeah. not unmanageable numbers at all. We're talking about a small percentage of the numbers displaced by the situation, um, the, the ongoing repression and conflict in Syria, which is one of the, the terrible humanitarian disasters of our time. And sometimes there is uh, European political leaders start to believe their own propaganda Mm. that Europe is doing more than anybody else. Mm. With the exception of Turkey uh, as a European Mm. country, the rest of Europe is not doing its fair Mm. share. So that's one um, myth to bust. Um, And secondly, there's also sometimes the belief that if a few people are accepted, then everybody else will follow, which we also know not to be the case. So all of those fears and myths provide no justification at all for measures that disregard EU and international law. Thank you very much, Catherine, for this conversation. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.